identify sort of four vectors that the department has to focus on. Uh, one vector is the software and software acquisition of the, inside the defense industrial base. Another vector is the, the hardware problem. Uh, you know, we have a lot of toys that are built with hardware and how do you lock down the providence of that particular supply chain hardware issue. Uh, the third vector, which has gotten some notoriety in the press, is what we call an insider threat problem or a carbon unit issue. And then the fourth vector, which we alluded to, which the department is looking at, is the concept of our telecoms, telecommunications, ISPs, 5G, how, we, how the department communicates and how it relies on the private sector in order to provide that. Episode 272 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and nothing we say reflects the views of anybody except possibly us today. Uh, not our clients, not our institutions, not the Defense Department, not the DNI, uh, and uh, not any of the law firms or other institutions that we work for, or I have been reminded by my family, our family members. Okay, today we're going to do an interview with Harvey Rishikoff and Joyce Carell. Uh, Joyce is the Assistant Secretary for Supply Chain and for the Supply Chain and Cyber Directorate at the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you. And uh, Harvey Rishikoff, with whom I go back a long way, but we're not going to talk about that, Harvey. He uh, was chair of a committee that I was once chair of, the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And he is the co-author of a very well-regarded uh, uh, MITRE Corporation report called Deliver on Compromise on Supply Chain um, Insecurity and What DOD and the Rest of the Government Should Be Doing About It. Uh, Harvey, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting us. It's a pleasure, Stuart. It is. Uh, and uh, uh, But first, we're going to do our news roundup with Matthew Hyman. Uh, Matthew Hyman is from the National Security Institute and formerly with uh, the Justice Department. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks, Stuart. Also, Gus Hurwitz, a law professor at the University of Nebraska uh, and associated with the International Center for Law and Economics. Say, Gus, how are you? Uh, great to be here as always. And Nate Jones, uh, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with the National Security Council. Nate, good to have you. Thank you, Stuart. Good to be here. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Uh, let's uh, let's start with the president's Twitter account, uh, which made some law uh, in the last week. Uh, the Second Circuit uh, basically affirmed the district court who said uh, President Trump alone among Twitter users is prohibited by the First Amendment from blocking users who uh, who he thinks disagree with him in flamboyant or effective ways. Uh, uh, Nate, did, uh, I noticed that the next thing that happened was that there was a lawsuit filed uh, uh, against um, uh, AOC, Alexandria uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who is also an effective Twitter user, uh, saying that uh, she should shouldn't be allowed to block people. So uh, what did the Second Circuit say, and does it apply to AOC? 
Yeah, I think I think as as any good lawyer would say, it depends. But I think I think there's a good chance that it does apply to her. Um, the Second Circuit, it was a three judge panel, said that the First Amendment prohibits public officials who use social media accounts for official purposes from excluding individuals from public dialogue because they disagree with their viewpoint. And this really involves, in this specific case, the use of blocking on Twitter which the effect of that is to prohibit or, or prevent individuals from viewing, replying to, retweeting, or liking tweets by the individual who has blocked them. One of uh, President Trump's primary defenses was that he had created this account in 2009 and used it for private purposes. It was a private account and not a public one. You know, obviously, despite using it extensively for early morning racist rants uh, to, to <laughs> well, we're not editorializing here, <laughs> uh, but he uh, he also has used it to to fire cabinet officials and he uses it extensively to to promote. His his policies as a government official. And what the court found is that that effectually transforms a private account into a public account. And, you know, what that means is you create essentially, I think what the court does by analogy is says that you're essentially creating around those tweets a public forum. And and when you have a public forum, First Amendment law prohibits you from, as a public official, from discriminating uh, against individuals based on their political viewpoints. And so um, by excluding these individuals through blocking, that's exactly what the president has done. And in effect, he has violated the First Amendment by doing that. Now, if I I was reading the uh, decision, it certainly sounded as though the Justice Department had been remarkably candid in confessing that this is used for a variety of governmental functions. They they didn't try to pull that back at all. Uh, I wonder with AOC whether she has room to say what I'm doing is expressing views about the issues of the day, not using this uh, for a governmental function. Yeah, exactly. I think I think there are two really interesting questions here. Um, the court clearly indicates that it, that this is not just limited to the president and that it extends to other government officials. But you've put your finger on one of the most important questions, which is what do they have to do with that account to convert it from a private account uh, into a public one. If they're just posting pictures of their cats and their kids uh, and nothing more, I think it's likely that a court would find it to be a private account. But there's obviously a spectrum here. And and the question remains, when do you cross that line? What types of activity are required before you cross that line? So I would would have thought that, you know, you're a first term House of Representatives member, you don't do anything, right? That, that matters. Uh, uh, maybe you vote, uh, but you don't vote by Twitter. Uh, doesn't she have the defense that uh, she's just running her mouth, not uh, actually running an office? I, I, in theory, although she's running her office and she, you know, in the same way that if, if a, if a Congress uh, person 
you know, went home and held a, a open public forum, but excluded uh, certain individuals from that physical space because they didn't agree with, with a certain viewpoint that they wanted to express. There is a question about whether or not they would be violating the First Amendment. She certainly has a lot less authority to to enforce those kinds of things than the president of the United States does. But, you know, a lot of what I think the, the Second Circuit's decision turned on here is, you know, that he is he is fostering a public debate in in most respects, he is he's purposely opening this account up to the public, but then excluding excluding people based on their viewpoints. And I think you could have a strong argument that even a first term member of Congress who who has, um, you know, limited authority as a government official is still engaging in that same kind of behavior and and thus violating the First Amendment. So I think there's a, there's a very strong analogy you can make. Um, I'm sure she try to mount some of those same defenses. But, uh, you know, if, if, if I were a judge on the Second Circuit, I think I think I would uh, probably uh, rule against her if, if she used her account for the same kinds of purposes and, and as the President of the United States has done. Well, and I think she and the President of the United States share the uh, tactical approach to Twitter that the more outrageous uh, the opposition to their views, the happier they are and the more uh, coverage they get. So I'm not sure that either of them is, is uh, poorly served by having to leave people uh, uh, up to have uh, vicious uh, retorts to their, uh, their tweets. Uh, uh, it's just part of becoming a uh, Twitter celebrity. I agree. So GDPR, uh, Matthew, uh, uh, I used to say it sucks, but now it turns out it bites too, right? Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the fines that are coming out uh, are pretty staggering. Yes. Uh, so Marriott just got tagged for $123 million. Uh, British Airways got tagged for $229 million. Uh, these are both by uh, the UK component of the authority. So each country has a privacy authority and each country in the EU can. And if you are a company operating across Europe, you sort of say, this is the authority I'm going to deal with. So clearly Marriott and logically BA were dealing with the UK authority. And um, these fines well eclipse the biggest fine to date, which was the one of $50 million by the French authority against Google. Of the two stories, Stuart, the one that I think is really interesting is the Marriott story, and it's because of the way um, Marriott wound up in the crosshairs. Marriott bought a company called Starwood, another huge oh, yeah. uh, hotel company. The uh, bad data practices originated with Starwood properties beginning in 2014. The deal with Starwood and Marriott closes in September 2016. And then Marriott reports the issues to the UK authority in November 2018. So a little over two years after that deal closes. And so what I think is interesting about this is Number one, if you're going to be doing deals, you're buying companies, you need to do an awful lot of pre-deal diligence to understand what are that company's data troves, what are their practices, 
prior to deal closing, you may want to demand uh, that they start changing their practices. And then post deal, you're going to have to do a lot of audits and testing and gap filling. And the other thing that is interesting to me from the regulatory perspective is most regulators, when you've acquired a company, uh, particularly in the US in the FCPA context, they give you about a year grace period to get everything cleaned up. Um, and so it'll be interesting to me to see whether the GDPR authorities sort of allow for that year of cleanup. Uh, but I think even if they had in this case, Marriott blew well past that one-year deadline. And so I'll just be curious to see, do you get six months? Do you get a year? Do you get a year and a half? Um, how forgiving are they when you've sort of inherited the problem? Yeah. Uh, you know, they could show a lot of um, uh, discretion to ease the penalty, and it'd still be pretty staggering. Yeah. You know, if, if they cut this in half, it's still tens of millions of dollars. Well, and that's why I think the, the pre-deal diligence is so critically important. So if I'm you know, if I'm leading the team that's buying Baker Co., and I find out that Stuart Baker's company has just been really lax in its uh, data management uh, approach, I might say, you know what? We're paying you a lot less than you thought we were going to pay you. Because or at least what, what we're paying you is going into a fund that's going to be held in escrow until we have gotten to the bottom of this and reported anything we have to report to the ICO, and we know what their reaction is. Yeah, although, of course, in a public company context, all those reps and warranties go away once you buy the public company. But you're right. You're going to start talking escrow. You're going to start talking about um, insurance. You're going to be talking about all kinds of things to hedge that risk. Or you're going to talk about trimming the deal, the price of the, the purchase. So hundreds of millions of dollars seems like a lot until you look at what the uh, what Facebook is rumored to be fined, $5 billion from uh, a, a, uh, an organization that isn't in, even in charge with uh, enforcing GDPR, which is our FTC. Uh, Gus, how much do we know about the, uh, the proposed order against Facebook? So this, this is my uh, rare opportunity to channel Brad Pitt and say, what's in the complaint, man? What's in the complaint? Um, we really know almost nothing about that complaint at this point other than the $5 billion uh, price tag uh, as a fine on it, um, which is what uh, uh, Zuckerberg had uh, telegraphed, or I guess if you just directly say it, it's not really telegraphing, uh, had told the market that uh, was uh, the high end of what they were expecting. Um, but uh, there's very little beyond that that we know. Um, we don't know uh, uh, if there are behavioral or conduct remedies are almost some in here. More important, we don't know what the scope of the complaint is. Is this only relating to the Cambridge Analytica incident? Is this broader? Does this uh, uh, discharge any other uh, liability uh, Facebook could be facing from the FPC for privacy-related incidents? We don't know at this point. Um, the, the best signal that we have, and it's a very noisy one, is that uh, the vote on the uh, settlement was 3-2 party line with uh, three Republican commissioners voting to approve it and the two Democratic commissioners uh, 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 not favoring the settlement, which suggests that they uh, think that it doesn't go far enough, but dot, dot, dot. The real question of uh, this settlement is how it's going to play into and how it's going to affect ongoing discussion about federal privacy regulation and legislation. And of course, if you're one of the Democratic commissioners and you think the FPC needs significantly more authority and power here, you're not going to vote for something that says we have enough power to address the Facebook issue. You're going to say this settlement doesn't go nearly far enough. Congress, you need to give us more authority to address these problems. 
Yeah, that does sound like a, a, a plausible situation. You kind of say, uh, we're Democrats. We want more privacy than any Republican administration, especially this one. Uh, and uh, the Republicans were scared off by lack of authority um, and Congress should give us the authority. Uh, I think that's that's probably the outcome. Size of the award uh, of, of the fine. Uh, there are people complaining that it's still not big enough. It's like 10 percent of uh gross uh, revenue, isn't it? It's, it's a lot of money. It, it's, yeah, it's a, a two months of uh, profit. Uh, it's a lot of money. It's uh, not a death blow to Facebook. Um, those uh, complaining about the size really wanted something that was intended to hurt the company um, and uh, uh, really be grossly punitive. Um, and sure, punitive damages, punitive awards, they have uh, uh, some role uh, in society, uh, in the law. I'm not going to go into uh, my law and econ lecture on uh, punitive damages, um, but uh, uh, the role, the purposes of these damages is uh, uh, to affect the company's conduct and other companies' conduct on the margin. It's not to say you did something bad, we're going to uh, take a pound of flesh from you for it. It's to say you did something bad, you need to stop doing it. And in the future, when companies are thinking about how much money will we be able to make by working with the Cambridge Analytics of the world, um, if it's less than $5 billion, and there's no way Facebook was making $5 billion off of its relationship with Cambridge Analytica, uh, they'll say, okay, this isn't worth risking uh, a $5 billion fine for this sort of business relationship. So if you think about this uh, uh, from the marginal incentives perspective, which is the standard way we think about fines like this, uh, it's a really big fine. So let me turn to Congress's effort to protect the privacy of uh, uh, Americans by taking Chinese surveillance um, cameras out of the installed base of U.S. government entities, especially DOD. Yeah, there, was, there were uh, stories about bases that had installed a bunch of uh, security cameras and then discovered that they were uh, provided by Chinese companies with ties to the Chinese government. And uh, Congress said, nope, rip them all out. Uh, how's that uh, working out, Matthew? Not too well. According to a report, there's at least 1,700 of these cameras still floating around. And there are two companies at issue here. So the one is called Hikvision, uh, which has more than ties to the Chinese government. 42%, the Chinese government has a 42% stake in the company, so it's not a nominal connection. Yeah. Uh, the other company is called Dawa. And so according to this report, there are at least 1,700 of these cameras. There's probably more. And I think it's just that it's the nature of cameras, you know, good cameras installed in buildings are not prominent and you can't easily read the label. And I suspect if I went to the chief operations officer here at Steptoe and said, what brand of cameras do you have surveilling your public and private spaces? He or she probably couldn't tell me uh, because that's not something normally a chief security officer thinks oh, about. You no, know, you know, I, uh, it is not responsible these days not to be able to 
call up all the stuff that's on your network. Right? I'm not saying it's not responsible. <laughs> I'm just suggesting <laughs> it's not their first order of priority to know the brand of camera that's behind that housing in the corner of the drywall. But, but knowing the brand might be a problem. Yeah. I guess that's right. Although I'm guessing these things run code that allow you to tell by by pinging them uh, uh, what the ultimate, uh, uh, you know, who's, who installed the code on that com- camera. Yeah, I think some of them do. It depends on how new the cameras are and how sophisticated they are. There's some pretty dumb, cheap cameras that uh, you can put in places that I'm not sure how well you can ping them, and they'll tell you I'm a Hick Vision or I'm a something else. Yeah. Well, at this point, uh, they, if, I, if I were Hick Vision, I wouldn't be advertising it at all. No. <laughs> okay. I, this is a case I, I'm, I I find fascinating. I may be the only one, uh, Gus. I, uh, I asked you to talk about this, even though you didn't really volunteer for it. Uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, Patent and Trademark Office has gotten all upset about a uh, decision that went up through the Fourth Circuit uh, on what you can trademark. And... Uh, um, people have trademarked ordinary words like beer as long as it has .com after it. So beer.com is a trademark. Uh, booking.com is a trademark. Uh, I, my first reaction, the PTO wants the Supreme Court to take the case and, and overturn uh, the Fourth Circuit. I got to say, it, it seems to me that adding .com is... Uh, Every bit as creative as adding, you know, an I in front of pod uh, or a phone. Uh, am I am I being too hard on the PTO? Holdmybeer.com, Stuart. Um, this case is it's a weird case. Uh, uh, first, it's uh, worth noting that there is a related case uh, coming from the same incident dealing with uh, the PTO's uh, approach to handling attorney's fees. And it's this case, uh, the lower court litigation, and that case has been accepted by the Supreme Court for next term. Um, So the uh, PTO has uh, a bee in its bonnet over uh, this case. Uh, I I agree with you 100%, uh, just to uh, make sure it's clear, the Fourth Circuit in February uh, issued a uh, order, an opinion, saying that, uh, yes, adding .com to a generic term uh, can give you something that is uh, distinctive and non-generic enough uh, that it uh, uh, can be trademarked. And uh, arguably, what's going on in the PTO's mind, um, the existing precedent is if you take two generic terms and sandwich them together, you still have a generic term. You can't de-genericify terms by uh, squishing them together. Dot com is generic. Uh, booking is generic. So uh, booking.com is too generic. So it stays generic. Um, I'm 100% with you. Uh, uh, pets.com, booking.com, diapers.com. These are things that we talk about as distinct entities. Clearly, they are not generic. I'd also say that in recent years, no one has ever lost money betting against the PTO. Uh, when it's going up to the Supreme Court. Uh, so I, I expect that this is going to be another fabulous loss for them. Um, and uh, I don't know why they're not just uh, cutting their losses in the Fourth Circuit um, and uh, want to make a federal issue of this. Yeah. So the, the USPTO will be crying a river, uh, maybe an Amazon.com river. Taxing, uh, digital commerce is all the rage. Uh, France actually has a new 
3% digital tax on uh, uh, sales to its uh, uh, residents. And uh, uh, the Brits are apparently going to fund Brexit by doing the same thing. Uh, uh, <laughs> Nate, uh, um, uh, the U.S. is complaining about this. Have they got a leg to stand on? I don't know. I mean, I suspect that the, the companies themselves aren't too happy about this. And it's probably, in this case, less about the the monetary cost of, of paying this French tax. Uh, I think most of them will be able to afford it. But it's it's more about the cumulative effect of adding adding these up as others follow the French lead and, and figuring out how to deconflict them and, and calculate what's owed in these places. That'll, you know, that'll be presumably has, the problem. The, the, the problem yeah. is trying to have a rational international set of rules about what you tax and what you don't and avoiding double taxation. Uh, exactly. And the, the concern on the part of the uh, Europeans is avoiding double taxation means they really don't get to nick these guys very badly at all. Exactly. And and there are a lot of conversations globally going on about how to do that. But instead, the the Trump administration has opted for um, Section 301 of the U.S. Trade Act of 1974. And this is a provision that authorizes the president to take all necessary action, including retaliation, to remove or, or change uh, policies that they determine are unjustified, unreasonable, or discriminatory. Uh, on its face, it's hard for me to see how this is this particular law in France is discriminatory. It applies based on the size of the company and the amount of revenue they generate globally. Uh, it is not a, a tax aimed uh, exclusively, again, on its face at American businesses, although it will certainly have uh, a greater effect on American companies since we own a larger share of this market. So I think the facts will be challenging for the Trump administration here. But, you know, at the same time, as we've seen in in previous cases, facts haven't stopped them from from using these kinds of things as a pretext to to. Oh come on! Uh, now you can't call it a pretext. You you, you admitted for... you admitted that the impact is going to fall on big U.S. companies. So this is like a tax on baseball. Uh, you say, oh well, it's it's you know they play baseball in Taiwan, but really this is aimed at at U.S. companies, and the U.S. government is not engaged in a pretext when it says we think this is discriminatory against Americans, whether they could win that case in the WTO if there were a WTO dispute resolution process, uh, less clear. But I, mean, I, I think it's not crazy. I think that's really hard where you know there's no clear discriminatory intent to the fact that you own a monopoly. <laughs> we're talking France here. France. That, that they're deciding to tax is, is a, I think it's a hard case to make. You know, it certainly has that effect, as I said, but but making the case legally is going to be very difficult for them. Yeah, maybe I, I you know, I, if 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 I were challenged to build a record in which uh, French officials said uh, this is the uh, fang uh, tax uh, uh, for uh, uh, Facebook, uh, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, uh, I think I could build that record. Uh, um, <laughs> but, uh, I don't doubt that there are comments out there that you could draw from. Uh, last uh, uh, thing before we do a quick review of uh, uh, stories that uh, we aren't going to get to discuss, uh, the administration is not sharing its cyber attack uh, memo with Congress. 
Congress has now added a demand. Well, sorry, the House of Representatives has added a demand that it, uh, that that uh, order be shared. This is the one that reduced the amount of uh, uh, oversight uh, uh, that uh, uh, cyber attack decisions out of DOD would get from the White House. Uh, and in a rare example of, uh, of the House of Representatives say, saying that they think the president needs more authority, they're apparently demanding uh, access to this to see whether the president has given up too much authority. Uh, uh, Matthew, uh, uh, what more can we say about this one? Well, I don't know how much more we can say about it. I think it's important just to remind folks that, as you mentioned, Stuart, under the Obama procedures, it was almost bureaucratically impossible to use cyber, offensive cyber tools. Right. And there's been a lot of former Obama administration officials who have said that. They said, you know, almost the, the design was such that you couldn't use the tools. And now we have National Security Advisor Bolton saying we're opening the aperture. He's clearly responding or he's referring to PPD, or I'm sorry, um, the, the new guidance, National Security Presidential Memorandum 13. And clearly they're using that uh, capability. Um, we've seen press reports about what they did uh, against uh, Russian operatives yeah, with regard Syria to the, too, I think the, yeah, the midterm elections. And then most recently uh, against Iranian intelligence uh, some sort of apparatus in response to the takedown of our drone over the uh, Strait of Hormuz. I do think Congress has a point. You think that, that, that they should, if this could get us into a war and they ought to know what the, the, the rules are. Yes. I, and, and, and I think that's why you saw both, you know, Republicans like Mac Thornberry join um, the Democrat chair of the committee saying, we would like to see this. And I think, I, so I don't think it's sustainable for Bolton to say we're opening the aperture, we're using this authority without at some point going to Congress or the Gang of Eight or whatever the group is and saying or giving them some summary of this is how we're doing the stuff. Now, I suspect the reticence to do so is based on two things. Number one, the Trump administration has an just a lousy relationship with Congress just across the board for a whole variety of reasons. Secondly, in particular, uh, when it comes to cyber tools, they are completely classified. The amount that we publicize about the nature and scope of those tools is almost non-existent, and Congress is notorious for not being able to keep a secret. So I think those two things are animating uh, the administration's decision to this point not to share anything. I just think that at some point they've got to go up to the Hill and say, yeah. this is how we're doing this I, stuff. Th th my guess is this is this is uh, Bolton more than Trump with a, an ideological view that Congress gets into too much of the uh, classified business of the executive, and uh, he's not going to do it willingly. And if uh, you're in the House of Representatives and you're chairing a committee, being able to pull a bunch of Republicans for that proposition to a kind of institutional position rather than a uh, partisan position makes sense. So we could see this in the, uh, in the next NDAA. Yeah, it, what'll be really interesting is to, uh, when the Senate version comes out, what do they do with this? Do both sides of the House say we're going to make this demand, or does it wash away in some sort of negotiation? Well, even compromise? if even if it's not in the Senate uh, bill, they're going to have to give the House something, and this is something they could give them. Yeah, and one one I think one compromise might be for the Senate to say to the White House, look, we're not going to have this in the bill, but you've got to come up here and tell us what's going on if you don't want it in the bill. There's a solution here. So I, there's a whole bunch of really fun stories that I'm just going to have to uh, cover in about 20 seconds each. Uh, there's a great story about a artificial intelligence 
just reading a bunch of old scientific papers and finding new connections, uh, uh, new inventions uh, out of uh, uh, the papers uh, uh, predicting thermoelectric materials just because they analyzed the uh, the language of these decisions. And I, you know, that's the only good news story we have to, uh, this week. Uh, I love this story. Uh, it's The Verge. It's some uh, Casey Newton op-ed in which he says, you know, I just discovered that uh, Facebook is pivoting to privacy and giving people lots more encrypted ability to communicate in groups. And I'm shocked, shocked. Because people I disagree with are communicating privately and I can't get into the groups and find them and, and, and humiliate them. I, and so uh, when it comes to fighting over privacy, everybody's going to fight for privacy until it gets in the way of the, uh, the social justice warrior retaliation machine. Mozilla has told the UAE that it's not going to let uh, uh, them become a certification authority. Uh, you know, I, they're, they're pointing to the the fact that dark matter, which is the entity that uh, um, was going to be the CA, uh, has a reputation probably pretty well earned for hacking a whole bunch of Westerners, journalists, uh, and the like on behalf of the UAE. Uh, and Mozilla obviously doesn't like that. Uh, I think if you're going to apply that standard, there's a whole bunch of other CAs that are going to wash out. So I'm just not sure this is a, a sustainable position on Mozilla's part, but it's interesting. The Germans uh, living down to their reputation have now uh, banned uh, uh, Microsoft Office 365 uh, for use by uh, for educational purposes, at least in Hesse. Uh, so we remember the Hessians here uh, for their participation in our uh, uh, revolution, and they are still uh, that way about Americans. Um, <laughs> this is one. This is fun. Uh, GDPR unanticipated consequences. Uh, some guy bet his girlfriend he could find out a whole bunch of her personally identifiable information, and he did it just by filing under GDPR, claiming to be her, and saying, "I want, I want all my stuff." And. Uh, Half of the of the uh, people said, oh, yeah, we ought to do that. And then about a quarter of them actually sent the stuff to him without any further information about uh, uh, who he was. Uh, so uh, more fun with privacy law. TikTok, there's a great story here in The Atlantic about TikTok and how enthusiastic kids are about uh, TikTok. Turns out, of course, TikTok is a, uh, a Chinese social media company, and it's going to be fun to see uh, uh, just how enthusiastic uh, uh, the U.S. government is going to be about having all of our kids providing all of their uh, videos and maybe their personal data to uh, uh, Chinese social media. I know that CFIUS would not have allowed uh, the purchase of TikTok if TikTok had been an American company by a Chinese company, but uh, they don't have the authority to stop TikTok from growing. And so it'll be an interesting question what happens to TikTok and, uh, in U.S. government policy circles. Gus, the EU's um, GPS system has been down for four days. Uh, any reason to think they were hacked? Uh, it's totally unclear at this point. Uh, the uh, authorities, the government uh, has issued a statement 
saying that the outage uh, doesn't have anything to do with the satellites themselves. It has to do with the ground station infrastructure. Which is where all the Who computers are. Means. Yeah, it, it has to, uh, uh, exactly. Um, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, uh, four days, over 100 hours at this point, so we're uh, at over four days. Um, and this is critical infrastructure. Fortunately, we have uh, redundant GPS systems uh, with the U.S. and it's entrusted the Russian system. Um, but uh, uh, nonetheless, it's pretty remarkable uh, that the system has been down and it's gone pretty unremarked upon in the uh, press as far as I've seen. And last, uh, uh, a uh, an update on the Mar-a-Lago Chinese thumb drive lady, uh, uh, who we all laughed at as uh, uh, sort of uh, cluelessly wandering around Mar-a-Lago, uh, lying about uh, why she was there and what she wanted to do. The prosecution has begun claiming that they've got a lot of classified information that they don't want to make public uh, uh, in her prosecution, which suggests to me at least that uh, maybe she was doing something with those thumb drives uh, as opposed to just wandering around with a bunch of junk in her uh, handbag. All right. Uh, that uh, uh, covers our news roundup. And let's turn to our interview with Joyce Perel and Harvey Rishikoff. So let me start by um, talking about the story we just heard, which is uh, uh, all of these video cameras, which are dirt cheap uh, and have been installed all over the place uh, um, without apparently anybody asking the question, uh, what does this do for our overall security? Uh, uh, and, and my question, I guess, for Joyce and for Harvey is, what is it that we should be, uh, uh, should be doing about this kind of supply chain issue? You mean things that have already been installed? Stuff we've, st yes, st stuff that the government has mm -hmm. bought. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, we suddenly discover might have security implications. Okay. A few years ago, the government spent a lot of time looking at the company Kaspersky Labs. And um, we you know, thought through you know, what needed to be done. There was an uh, examination of the concern of the technology and the data that the antivirus service provider would uh, take back to, to Russia, and that was deemed an unmitigable risk. Um, as we, as a government, and, looked and at the DHS sent out a binding operational directive to uh, all of the civilian uh, agencies saying, uh, get this off your systems in the next, I think, 90 days. Right. That um, allowed agencies a period of time to, you know, look at what they had provisioned on their networks, some time to think through if they had anything, how to uh, plan to transition away from that and have an appropriate replacement uh, in place because you would probably not want to be without antivirus protection. Uh, so, so as the government went through this process, there was a, a recognition that we needed to look at where we had policy and legislative gaps. And one of the gaps was um, a recognition that we needed authority for the entire government. So that uh, led to uh, uh, interaction with the Congress that led to the uh, Secure Technology Act signed by the president on 21 December in 2018 that gives the government the authority to take broader action, whether something's been installed, as you described with the camera example. So this, this act is really a reaction to the Kaspersky uh, binding operational directive and um, it, discoveries that uh, uh, maybe the BOD process isn't uh, sufficiently well developed to, to operate without a better legal grounding. 
Um, so I don't know that it's necessarily a reaction to the Kaspersky issue. That was an issue that received a lot of attention. Uh, but this is an evolving um, uh, approach to better risk management across the government from um, different threat vectors. So when we're worried about an adversary using a company as a as a threat vector um, or as a third party um, or as a stepping stone to other other opportunities, we needed to put in place from a top down um, the authority to direct all government organizations to improve their risk management by putting supply chain risk management processes in place. I should have asked you before uh, uh, what your job is and how you, uh, that, that, that's usually, you know, in, in government stuff, people always roll out their title and uh, mm-hmm. explain what their uh, uh, turf interests are. But uh, uh, what do you actually do on this problem? Okay. Well, so, so my job title, I'm the um, assistant director. I'll, you may call me assistant secretary as you introduce me, if you so please. I'm, I'm um, glad to. I'm the assistant director of supply chain and cyber in the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. So that's an, an organization with an ODNI. We have responsibilities for the intelligence community, but our counterintelligence and security authorities are actually government-wide. So we, we do have some uh, broader responsibilities as well as a mandate for uh, engaging with the private sector. Okay, so this is in your wheelhouse. Yes, it is. All right, now, Harvey, uh, tell us where your wheelhouse is. <laughs> well, I'm just a simple country lawyer, Stuart, as you know. I would say that currently I'm also involved with ARLIS, the new uh, Applied Research Laboratory for Security and Intelligence. That's a UARC, which you might know as a university-affiliated research center. Oh, God. You, you are, you've just totally gone DOD on us. Uh, uh, well, uh, it's sort of an important sort of uh, instrument that we have. But I think the and I'm also with Temple Law School. But I would say you've put your finger on a very significant and important problem. I would say that the first half of the show all raised interrelated issues concerning this issue of the problem of technology is now so pervasive in so many aspects of what we do that, uh, you know, when we were when I was with Judy Miller at the American Bar Association co-chairing the National Task Force on Cyber and the Law, we actually put out what we referred to as a cyber audit book that in a merger and acquisition, increasingly we saw cyber vulnerabilities would become a rather significant element of the business acquisition problem, as has been pointed out in the first story that you led off with. And what makes it even more a little bit disconcerting is in the colloquy you had vis-a-vis the potential cameras at Steptoe, I would argue that in one of my other hats that I once had, it would probably be really interesting if I could have a camera in Steptoe that would be able to zoom in on a whole set of attorney-client privilege discussions. Yeah. As what is going on. Turn on, turn on the mic. A whole range of issues, and that, as you know, we at the ABA identified law firms as extraordinary, excellent, juicy targets that our adversaries would love to be able to penetrate. You, 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 you were only the second to get there. The Chinese got there first. Well, that doesn't mean that we may have got there first, articulated it to people, but people didn't listen. If you remember, uh, we, we published when I was at the National Counterintelligence Executive, which is the precursor to the organization that Joyce currently is with. In 2011, we identified three advanced persistent threats, Russia, China, and Iran. And we also had called out then a company that no one had ever heard of, 
the problem with we call the H problem, Huawei. And in 2011, we had identified Huawei as a significant problematic player inside the supply chain. So your question, which makes, I think, Steptoe has both, I would say, advantages and disadvantages. And the Steptoe issue is you have an advantage now because of the cyber audits. Lawyers are going to be now asked to do extraordinary roles in the acquisition. The downside is um, if it turns out what your security is is not what we would think is appropriate or under the rules of the road standardized, you have potential liability issues that your clients will have if you believe that some of the data they've given you has been compromised. Has compromised. Sure. And this has now become exhibit A for the Department of Defense and but, a slow so this recognition. Is, this, is, this is breach notification and uh, uh, a concern. I want to dive into stuff you did in the Deliver Uncompromised mm -hmm. report, which is much more focused on supply chain. Mm -hmm. uh, and it seems to me that what we heard from Joyce was um, the government really got focused on supply chain and what they could do about it in kind of the context of Kaspersky yeah, and uh, realized, I'm putting words in Joyce's mouth, but realized that it didn't have a set of procedures and clear authorities to do the kind of comprehensive job that it wanted to do and that uh, Kaspersky was just one of the threats that they were going to face. Deliver Uncompromised I, it's, I read it as addressing that same problem and saying there's a whole host of changes that ought to be made in the government's approach to its supply chain uh, in order to make sure that, uh, you know, the F-35 flies mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, people can get intelligence on the ground uh, as they're moving around on important missions. So, right. Um, so what would you say uh, – What Deliver Compromise has been out for a while, got mm -hmm. a lot of good press. Mm -hmm. um, what's been done as a result of that report already? So I think the Department of Defense has responded. And I think as you laid out, uh, we, we identify sort of four vectors that the department has to focus on. Uh, one vector is the software and software acquisition of the, inside the defense industrial base. Mm -hmm. Another vector is the, the hardware problem. Uh, you know, we have a lot of toys that are built with hardware, and how do you lock down the providence of that particular supply chain hardware issue? Uh, the third vector, which has gotten some notoriety in the press, is what we call an insider threat problem or a carbon unit issue. Uh, Mr. Snowden et al. has demonstrated what how significant it is. If you lock down the first two vectors, but you have an insider threat problem, it's going to be absolutely devastating to the system. And then the fourth vector, which we alluded to, which the department is looking at, is the concept of our telecoms, telecommunications, ISPs, 5G, how, we, how the department communicates and how it relies on the private sector in order to provide that, that that's the space. So that's the services supply chain, I yeah. guess. And then yeah. the second issue, which became quite controversial with the report is, uh, we have argued and articulated that counterintelligence and intelligence has to become fundamentally part of the acquisition process, that the acquisition professionals are wonderful people, excellent, but they are not really educated or trained in understanding 
what the risk is from a counterintelligence and intelligence. So let's budget. hear from uh, somebody from the DNI's yeah. office, the Director of National Intelligence. Uh, um, it, that sounds like a challenge to DNI to do a better job of producing intelligence uh, or counterintelligence on uh, supply chain risks. Right. So this is um, uh, this is not a new challenge, and I know that the Department of Defense has looked at acquisition reform um, over the past several years um, with the you know better buying better buying power. Um, uh, process and methodology, but that has fallen a bit short because you can't add intelligence information at the end or security at the end right. of a process. So, so you have to think these things through from the beginning. Uh, the DU report sort of coined the term, uh, you know, uh, security is the fourth pillar. Right. Um, and and that that process, whether whether you're um, you want to articulate that um, from an implementation perspective as security is the foundation, or if you want to articulate it as um, uh, comparable to cost schedule and performance, you still have to um, consider it right up front um, to, to, do to, that, to understand that. To, to do that, does that basically mean, I mean, there are many other things it could mean, but uh, thinking about how you apply this. Blacklists of companies that we just don't think it's uh, we can do business with, uh, and still be confident that the F thirty fives will fly. So, so I prefer not to use the term blacklist. There are lists. So you know, the Department of Commerce has the entities list. There are companies that get sanctioned. You right. know, so there are companies. But, that you know, get on this lists. is more uh, companies that uh, whose um, ties to hostile governments mm -hmm. uh, we uh, uh, we think are too strong for us to be comfortable with. Uh, um, uh, there was a, it was a great uh, uh, piece of legislation that said, uh, don't buy from the enemy. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that was the name of the, the don't act. Don't contract with the enemy. Don't contract with the enemy. I, you know, that does seem like common sense. Uh, uh, and, but if you're you know, buying widgets in St. Louis, you don't necessarily know who's working for the en enemy. So don't don't we have to develop some kind of list to guide the acquisition of, of professionals? I think first first you need to actually do a better job of due diligence, and you really need of to perform robust who, who due the hell diligence. Made this yes. and uh, who they report to. So we call this illuminating the supply chain. Good. Um, it's a phrase that we used in the report. And when you think about the illumination of the supply chain, when you deal with the, the first tier, the, uh, the defense industrial base, and if you actually look at the DOD budget, actually about eight or nine companies in the first tier constitute almost 80% of the entire budget, which is then subcontracted. Now, the argument that's been put forward by the, the process is that it's hard for the first tier countries to actually first tier companies to actually understand the supply chain, which may go down thirty or forty tiers because of privity and contract issues. Right. This is all part of the supply. So we've been exploring a number of issues. One is the Defense Production Act. If you look at uh, Section um, the 700, 708 and company, the government and the president has the power to request those uh, copies of those contracts down the chain. Mm -hmm. And that's a first step of who actually are you contracting with as to what your potential risk management and vulnerabilities. Well, and, and it's not like this is something that only DOD oh, no. want, right? So if, you're, if you're a financial institution, you should want the same kind of uh, illuminated supply chain. And, and we can all, you know, let's put it on the blockchain. And then everybody will say, oh, it's got to be secure. Well, as you, as you know, this is an interesting question. Like, I don't know what Steptoe's power would be 
when you have unlimited, unlimited. Uh, when you contract with your suppliers, your demand to see your supplier, 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 suppliers as part of your contractual relationship, they would probably balk at that. Because that's where you start to understand yes. what profit margins are. You start to understand where you are dealing with the ability to have um, offshore production. That so, so I was joking about yeah. blockchain, but part of the problem is it's just hard, right? You, you, you don't know because uh, uh, three layers down, you're not dealing with them. But the, somebody is. And if everybody has an incentive to have this record available, then if, and if you can make it available electronically by blockchaining it, uh, uh, everybody has an interest in being able to get access to that information. Yes. And then the question is whether or not you can get the access to the information without actually needing to know the price per widget. You just want to know who the actual supplier and developers are. Mm -hmm. So you could hold back. But we're, I think, moving to that stage in which there's going to be a huge potential demand because, as you pointed out, the camera issue with DOD and Steptoe, you would think that the CISOs, the Chief Information Security Officer, would like to say, I'd like to know the provenance because of this key aspect of information flow, anything being exfiltrated outside of your entity, you would like to lock down and know where that's going. So that's part of the Kaspersky problem is this exfiltration problem. And then can you monitor the exfiltration and as a supplier demand as part of your contractual relationship of knowing where data is flowing that it's not your control? I think you yeah. also also, you know, the business environment is very dynamic. So suppliers could change throughout your business partnership with a particular firm. Mm -hmm. Um, so you need that insight on a more a more routine basis, so not you, just you know at the time of um, so you know a we, merger or you know throughout. We're, we're talking about the phrase is called continuous monitoring, and uh, lawyers will be quite familiar with it because when you do sue someone, it turns out over time those companies change, and you have to then modify your complaint. That's a very common practice that we've had in lawsuits. It's going to be increasingly yeah, in the defense department. You kind of have to update your complaint every week and a half. Unfortunately, that may be correct, Stuart. So, uh, as you know, the suing the Department of Defense has become a great Washington industry, which is paid for, I think, part of this conference room. Yeah, so, uh, the issue becomes the, the notion of this clarity. And so, one of the issues you said concretely what's happened. Well, first of all, the Department of Defense did stand up its task force in order to st start looking across the enterprise, what is going on. We also have been created, which um, Joyce sits on, which is the council, which just sits the across. Acquisition, this is the Acquisition Risk Council? So it's the Federal Acquisition uh, Security, Security Council that um, was born out of the statute, the Secure Technology Act. This is the act that you talked about right. that yes. was passed yes. uh, just so Christmas. creating that across the line. And then we also have, there's legislation pending of creating what we want to create, which is akin to the um, National Counterintelligence Center that you're familiar with, mm -hmm. the NCTC, that we want to create under Bill F. shot with Joyce, where Joyce is, to create a national... Um, supply chain information sharing because we'll be able to so get type an intelligence collection and yes. information, and a lot of open source information about who the hell are these people and where do they get their stuff. And what's unique about it is years ago, if you remember when we set up the uh, insider threat, we dual hatted it. We had Title 10 DOD, but we also had Title 18 and the FBI involved. Mm -hmm. And what we're saying about this particular center, like the NCTC, it's going to be quattro hatted 
which means it's going to have both Title 50, which is intelligence, Title 10, DOD, Title 18, but also we're bringing in Homeland Security. Because Homeland Security, as you remember from your experience, Stuart, has many, many authorities. Yes, yes, it does. Whether they exploit their authorities is a different issue, but we would very much like to have the They usually do when the FBI will let them. Well, well, as we say, a, a joint effort, joint task force. So then when the issue will become... If we have all the authorities, we'll be able to gather the information and then we'll be able to feed it back through DHS's authorities. Because as you know, one of the greatest criticisms the private sector has is we never get anything back from the government. We send this information. So we're trying to figure out and create this mechanism that we can use DHS authorities to send that back and not just have the intelligence community. But we think the center of gravity of where information is lying is inside the IC and the IC has to be part of this process of acquisition because we'll be able to tell you if Steptoe is targeted for a variety of reasons, the theory would be if that came up through our channels under Title 50, we should be able to quietly say to Title to you through DHS authorities, you should know the deal you're working on. We have picked up extraordinary yeah, amount of process. Yeah, I'm not sure that's going to change the supply chain because you know uh, my memos in the files of my clients don't usually report home. Um, uh, but I, I, I do think that the idea that you could use intelligence to determine what are our acquisition security risks mm-hmm. is interesting. And I, I want to go back to the Kaspersky experience because I think that was a learning experience. And one of the things that Kaspersky complained about is they said, you just kind of did this and we didn't have a chance until after the fact to complain about it and to tell you our side of the story and explain why you shouldn't be worried. And of course, lawyers are all into due process. So how much due process does the new law allow to people who are accused of not being reliable suppliers? Right, so the the lack of due process was, um, I think that was uh, you know played out through litigation. KL did not um, win that litigation. The um, Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice very carefully looked at how DHS was using the binding operational directive, and uh, the uh, BOD, as it's referred to, was actually published in the Federal Register. So it was made publicly known, and the company was afforded an opportunity to um, provide their side. So the, there was a um, an a due process built into that. Um, the same thing is now in the um, uh, uh, codified in the Secure Technology Act, and it was informed by the um, attorneys that had guided um, the steps that DHS took, um, along with you know working with the members of, uh, in the Congress to come up with language uh, that was acceptable from from both sides, from the administration and the Congress, for that due process piece. Frankly, I would guess there ought to be a dozen, maybe two dozen companies that are going through that process at high speed uh, for a determination of whether they're going to stay in our um, a, a tech mm-hmm. environment. Uh, uh, can you tell us how many companies are getting reviewed for uh, exclusion? So at this time, um, where the executive branch is at is doing the first um, order of business out of the statute, um, which was to develop a charter and to develop a strategic implementation oh, plan. This is so government. So this is yeah right right. So so we have to have um, uh, processes and criteria, and those processes and criteria actually have to be publicly known. So so there's we're we're through that we're going through the deliberative process of developing those. Um, at some point, the um, uh, the council 
is actually led by OMB. And OMB, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, is um, involved, has a very strong role. Um, at at, at um, some point, there well, will be regulations. Well, they've always been, in theory, in yes. charged with responsibility for cybersecurity mm -hmm. and the in federal o infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, they have suffered from a lack of mm -hmm. ability to follow through because they, mm -hmm. they're, they're so overworked uh, and understaffed. Uh, um, so who are they using to staff OMB? Uh, so, so this is actually um, there. There's the um, opportunity to create a, a program management office. Mm -hmm. So it remains to be seen, you know, where uh, what what the um, direction of OMB will be to stand something like that up. Um, I you, you you made the comment about um, uh, critiquing my language as being you know, very very bureaucratic. Yes, I did. Um, I think he meant as, it as, as a compliment. You know. Actually, yes. I heard it as a compliment. <laughs> so these are these are processes that take time. Um, in parallel, there are other other efforts underway um, that are uh, that are very important. Uh, uh, Harvey was talking about uh, the need for transparency or illumination of the supply chain. Um, there's a lot of interest in developing a standardized approach to a software bill of materials. Right. So the Department of Commerce, which, which, uh, which was in the, the, the DU report. Mm -hmm. uh, right. uh, yeah. And a software bill of materials uh, is essentially a, a concept of what clumps mm -hmm. of software have you added to your product? Because mm -hmm. everybody, nobody writes software anywhere. Right. They mm -hmm. just go around looking for mm -hmm. uh, open source stuff they can right. jam into mm -hmm. their uh, uh, their existing uh, product. Uh, and there isn't always a clear way to figure out what's been put in here and, right. and kind of most importantly, mm -hmm. has it been updated? Right. And when you talk about updated, um, you know, that also brings to mind the CloudHopper you know the the concerns about hacks to manage service providers and their and um, uh, do you know what is in the development environment of the right. organizations that are providing you and provisioning you with goods and services? So you know um, I have some affiliation with the National Science Foundation, National Academy of Sciences. You you know you should just tell us the yeah. organizations you don't have an affiliation with. Step toe. Yeah. So, um, and, and 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 the answer continues to be no. Um, the, I'm sorry about that. I, 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 though though though. Seeing you on your knees, I found quite, I'd say, almost religious-like. So um, the, the question, though, is we're – like, you know, there's, there's uh, enterprises like Safe Code by Steve Littner. There's a, this, the community is spending a lot of time and effort now trying to how to figure out how to write code through – and people believe with ML and, and AI, we're going to get to better, better, better code writing. But as you know, right now, I think uh, the latest report I saw in Java – Something like if you take your average Java, something like 30 or 40 percent has zero days in it when it comes online on the new code. So the, we have a long way going, but there's a huge recognition of it. And there's a huge effort now to start to figure out how to make the clean code. Clean code's critical, but as you pointed out, you still have the provenance of the hardware and we still have the problem of the insider threat. It's a multi-varied issue I, that I'm we're gonna, moving. I'm going to call BS on the insider threat uh, because it, we've had the insider threat since, uh, you know, uh, 1777. Uh, and yes, they can steal more data, but uh, we've always had the risk of people stealing data. The interesting and new problems have to do with the way people can use our uh, own information systems against us. And, and uh, I don't expect a lot of breakthroughs in human intelligence uh, or counterintelligence. Uh, um, uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of skeptical that that well, ought to be a, a major focus it, of the it, report. It, well, no, it, it's not a major focus of the report. Uh, the report focused on sort of 
it has you know the twenty actions that we say you should mm-hmm. take in the near, near near term, medium term, and long term. But it always is amazing, you know, when I never associated you with a federal society conception of the notion. But we've we've had spying since the Bible, so we understand that. The issue, though, is the on scale and and scope what you can do vis-a-vis insider being putting malicious code or something inside the system that has to be constantly monitored on your networks. Uh, but I think that's what the concern is. And then, as you know, there's a huge issue, which we're now currently dealing with 5G. Right. And that issue, as you pointed out, is when you said about lists of companies that are good or bad, we are in a situation now in which we have allowed there to be such a deterioration in the marketplace right. that we do not have alternative companies that are able to supply and we are reaching a stage in which you are I think adequately uh, tiptoed up to is that we're going to have competing supply chains for companies and corporations in the different systems of the two major competitors so that's, uh, the, that's I, a really I, inter- I, I, problematic I, I, issue that we're evolving and this your podcast has raised it occasionally yes yes but this is a real serious industrial policy issue for the West oh yeah that we have to no one is Confronted, but is really one of the key significant issues. So the DoD is, and I think you may have criticized yeah. DoD for focusing on um, a continuity of services that DoD is completely dependent on. Right? Do we have enough generators to keep our bases running, as opposed to what happens if somebody takes down the grid? Um, mm-hmm. As long as they have enough generators, the grid doesn't feel like a DOD problem. Um, a, and the same is true for telecom. And it does seem to me that the only solution is to persuade other industries that depend on reliable services, uh, uh, whether you're talking about telecoms or uh, data centers uh, to say we need something that brings together the counterintelligence insights of the government and the market interests yes. of yes. consumers. So mm-hmm. let me ask Joyce, what kind of interaction is there going to be with the private sector? Is your is it your expectation when the, uh, the, the Acquisition Security uh, Council takes action that Morgan Stanley's going to know that uh, this thing they just bought is now something that the U.S. government uh, is ripping out? So the, the statute does um, have in it um, a, a responsibility for private sector engagement. So um, how, how we move out on that right now, um, uh, the Department of Homeland Security um, uh, probably six or seven months ago established the ICT Supply Chain Risk Management Task Force. So those you know existing mechanisms will be used for engaging with industry. But your your Morgan Stanley example, you know, I, I don't know that if there is a um, a decision for the the um, most stringent of, of restrictions, which would be an ex- the use of an exclusion order, you know, that'll become known. I, I, I do want to, since we're talking about the, the telecoms topic, is um, you know, say that, um, that you know the president signed the executive order in May that established. Um, uh, an, an authority for uh, the Department of Commerce to have in place a regime to look at um, uh, sourcing decisions in, in our in our industries. The first time that we've had that type of authority, um, authority at all, right? Yeah. right. Um, 
So as the Department of Commerce is is um, working on its um, how to put in place these these restrictions or guidelines, th- those will be done in a complementary fashion to what we're doing under the Federal Acquisition Security Council, which will also be complementary to um, the work that has um, evolved from the expanded CFIUS or the FIRMA statute. Am I right that the, that the head of NTIA was one of the people who was most enthusiastic about that authority for the Commerce Department? He left just as the executive order came out. Uh, NTIA is still doing this work, though, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And so, so let me let me leave you with this uh, concept because, you, as you pointed out, this problem is larger than just DOD. Yeah. So one of the issues in the report that we're pursuing and looking at um, is the concept of a, a scoring system that you can score supply chain security. So we have scoring systems for your finances, our FICO scores. Right. We have scoring systems for public finance, which is Moody's. So we are arguing that there is, if you're going to move the needle and you really want to get people to start thinking about supply chain, is there independent scoring mechanisms that we can use that would then be able to give ratings for certain software products, hardware products, or even insider threat issues, and even rating law firms and saying, what is your security system? Well, Steptoe compared to Wilmer Hale is X or Y versus what it's like at, um, you know, uh, Wilkie Farr. If we, they're gone, I think now, Wilkie. So they no longer had so a security system. So they no longer had a security system. Obviously, that was that great. So that's the concept that we're looking at. And a number of entities have come forward. Some some cyber insurance companies have come forward and said they're going to start scoring. Yeah. The department is putting together what it believes is an opportunity. Our position is that you just can't score software. That's what you can try and do. You have to score the entire aspect, which is both the hardware process, the insider threat, and your telecommunications. Well, and, and right? it's always going to keep changing, right? Well, you, you, would have, you would have scored Intel very high on security until people started discovering Rowhammer and the like. As well, that's why it's a continually attack. thing. It's sort of like handicapping your baseball team, that if there's a quick injury, it goes down. Okay, so uh, professional sports uh, analogies um, not accepted on the podcast. Uh, uh, but uh, let me let me. Close. I can move, I can move to opera for, <laughs> yes, for, for rating. You know, so, if that's more comfortable yeah, that, for that where, you sit, where you sit. Much better. That much better. But let me ask Joyce to yes. close it out uh, by reacting to uh, uh, that idea. Uh, what can the U.S. government do to encourage the creation of uh, organizations that can engage? in this sort of dynamic scoring of the cybersecurity of people who are supplying uh, our IT infrastructure? I think there's a lot of promise there. When we look at um, where the Department of Defense is going in establishing um, a capability maturity model, a standard for a capability maturity model, um, ideally those those are tools one can use to say what are the, what do I need to do to be trending in a good direction. So scoring could be very complementary to that to inform you know the, the decision maker. I also think it would be helpful to uh, um, inform people so they can better understand their risk appetite. I think in, in uh, you know, looking at decisions that companies make, that government organizations make, um, people are now beginning to realize that they may have been making risk decisions without fully knowing what their exposure was. 
So once they do know, what's their risk appetite? So is is the U.S. government going to actually do something about getting scoring uh, out on the street? Um, so I think that remains to be seen. Um, our research community um, in, in the executive branch is looking at um, a variety of tools um, that would be complementary to um, your processes of continuous monitoring, for example. All right. That completes our interview. Uh, I, uh, Harvey wanted to talk more, but I'm just going to say no. Sorry. Uh, but I do want to thank him for uh, his uh, uh, consistent focus on Steptoe and its uh, uh, security records, uh, uh, which is actually pretty good so far. Uh, uh, and also Joyce Carell, uh, uh, for, uh, with whom I have worked for years, uh, uh, more years than she will admit, I think. Uh, and uh, I also thanks to uh, Matthew Hyman, Gus Hurwitz, uh, Nate Jones for joining us on the uh, News Roundup. This is episode 272 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. If you've got other guests to suggest, don't suggest Harvey again, uh, but... Uh, Otherwise, uh, uh, we will give you, as I am giving to Harvey and oh, to Joyce, oh, as we speak, uh, uh, a oh. cyber law podcast, coveted uh, coffee wow. mug, I mug. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, send those suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, I occasionally tweet uh, the uh, stories we're going to cover, and I did this week. Uh, uh, so if you want to follow at Stuart Baker, that's where the uh, um, you can get a preview of the topics we're going to cover. Please, if you like the show, go rate it. Uh, we haven't been rated in about a, score. Uh, a month. Uh, Harvey, he wants a score. I so do. I think you, you do want to score. You I may, want, you score you may want to rate just the episode, which would, this would I, yeah, be yeah, That's right. And I, I want to add for the record that the cup came empty. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> like so many things I've received from Stuart over the decades. <laughs> well, that's right. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, the last word, as always, goes to Harvey Rizhikov. Uh Coming up, we're going to get Paul Shar and Greg Allen from CNAS, who will talk about China and AI and who promise that they're going to be better behaved than Harvey has been. Uh, then we are going to go on our August hiatus. And oh. I'm going hiking uh, in the Maritime Alps with a bunch of family members. Uh, should be a lot of fun. Fun. Uh, I, my thanks to Christy Jorge, our producer, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Michael Beaver, our assistant and editor, and I am Stuart Baker, host and provocateur. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.